Okay, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Ruth chapter 3. If you don't, you can find one in the seat back in front of you, and I think you'll find Ruth chapter 3 on page 189 in that Bible. So Ruth chapter 3. Four weeks ago, if you can remember back that far, we began looking at the story of Ruth and Naomi. And we were supposed to finish it two weeks ago, but the hurricane canceled our service. But this is such an important story, and this, I think, is such an important message um, that I thought it was worth coming back to it, the first chance we got, which is this morning. Um, As we look at going forward as a church, as a remembrance like September 11th causes us again to reexamine our priorities and what's really important. This is an important message for us. So we pick up the story in chapter 3 this morning. Last time, if you can remember back four weeks, we met Naomi, a destitute and bereft older widow from the village of Bethlehem. Naomi had lost her husband and both of her grown sons in the land of Moab. We also met Ruth, Naomi's young daughter-in-law from Moab, who had given up her own future and and risked her life to stay with and to support Naomi as Naomi moved home to Bethlehem. And along the way, we saw that Ruth met Boaz, a a marriageable uh, relative of Naomi, who, as her kinsman redeemer in that culture, had some responsibility to provide help and support and protection for Naomi and Ruth. Boaz had paid special attention to Ruth and had been kind and generous to her, providing food to enable Naomi and Ruth to survive. And today we pick up the story. And again, as I did last time when I told the first half of the story, I'm going to fill in some of the details which aren't in the text, mostly based on what we know from the culture of the time and from the, the meaning of a few of the Hebrew words in which the story was originally written. So I haven't taken too much creative license. This is hopefully based on my study of the text. Maybe there's a little bit of spice here and there just to make it interesting. If there are two things that have the power to heal a broken heart, they are surely home and love. Naomi had really come a long way in the few months that she'd been home in Bethlehem under the attentive, loving care of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. When Naomi had first arrived home in Bethlehem, she had been so depressed so bitter that she could barely even acknowledge Ruth's presence with her. Now, as her heart was beginning to heal, she she got to the point where she could actually think again of someone outside of herself. And Naomi did. She thought of Ruth. One day she woke up and she said, you know, my daughter, I should do something to find a home for you. I should find you a husband. Those were the days of arranged marriages and of male-dominated culture when a woman needed a husband to survive in that society. So Naomi, in effect, was saying, Ruth, you've been living with this bitter old woman, living hand to mouth, but this is no future for you. No, you need a man to provide for you. You need to get on with your life. You need to raise a family with him. And she continued, I think I have a plan. 
It's risky, to say the least, dangerous even, but if you're willing, it just might work. Later that evening, Boaz had just finished up winnowing the last of the day's barley crop. Tossing it in the air, he let the wind carry away the chaff and the straw, leaving the grain behind. Boaz wiped the sweat from his brow and he stood back to survey the large grain pile. A good day's work. Now, at the end of the day, it was time for some fun. Harvest time is always a festive time in a rural farm community. When the crops have been safely brought in, everyone rejoices that there's food enough for another year. There were no uh, shop rights back then. The community gathered to celebrate that the harvest had been brought in. And after farmers pay off their debts and, and they make the purchases of needed supplies that they're going to need for the winter and for the next year, there's usually a little something left over for, for good food and, and for lots of fun. Drinks flow freely, and money is spent on entertainment, reputable or otherwise. Such, no doubt, was the gay environment at the threshing floor of Bethlehem that evening. As Boaz put down his winnowing fork, he filled his plate with good food, he poured himself a drink. It had been a good year, l'chaim. So it was with a happy heart that several hours later, Boaz found his way over to his large pile of barley. He lay down on the far side of it, away from the others. He'd sleep there on the vulnerable, deserted side to protect his crop from thievery during the night. Pulling a covering over him on this cool night, he drifted off to sleep. Some hours later, in the dead of the night, Boaz suddenly jolted awake. His heart pounding, his palms sweaty, disoriented. He realized he was uncovered and, and twisting around that he wasn't alone there in the dark. Someone else was there, someone soft, someone smelling of perfume. Who knows what thoughts flew through Boaz's mind in that moment? Who was this woman? How much had he had to drink? What was she doing here? Nothing like this had ever happened to him, no doubt. Helpless and confused, all he could do was call out into the dark, Who are you? The voice that answered back through the darkness was a familiar one. I am your servant, Ruth. Ruth, he thought. She continued, Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now becoming fully awake, Boaz collected his thoughts. A woman was there with him in the dark, clean and fragrantly attractive. It was Ruth. She had uncovered him. Now most of our English translations say that she had uncovered his feet and that she was lying at his feet. The Hebrew is actually ambiguous. The word for feet can refer to any part from the waist down. Wherever she had actually positioned herself in relation to Boaz in the dark that night, one thing was clear. She was offering herself to him. She would be his bride. But why would she? He was old enough to be her father. Why was Ruth engaging in this, this risky and dangerous overture? 
Good thing it was dark and late and that the grain pile afforded them some privacy from the others. Why, if this got out, that Ruth had been behind the grain pile at night with Boaz during the harvest festival. Well, they believed him, that, that, that he was innocent and, and, and unsuspecting and that she had made advances toward him in the dark that he had not sought or encouraged. In fact, he could drive her away right now and brand her a whore. She'd be the town pariah. But why did she want to marry him? Was it for his money? For his status? He was older, well-respected, high class. She was but a young, poor immigrant girl. What business did she have reaching up for him? He could be insulted. He should be insulted. He could give her a reputation in town that she would never recover from. But that wasn't the Ruth that he knew. No, though the world might look at a girl like this and say, loser, nobody, he had observed what was inside. She had been so selfless, so faithful to her mother-in-law. She was diligent and hardworking. Truth be told, others had noticed it too. In fact, Ruth's virtues and attractiveness had gotten her noticed by men all over town. So much so that she could probably have any number of, of young men in the town as a husband, men far more eligible than Boaz. But she had chosen old Boaz. And Boaz knew he could do no better than Ruth. Ruth was a catch. Everyone in town knew it. They all knew that beneath her humble exterior, she was a woman of noble character. And she had offered herself to Boaz. It's true he was her kinsman redeemer. He, he had some responsibility toward her and her mother-in-law to provide, to protect, to care for, and to support these two destitute women. No, maybe she didn't love him, but she loved her mother-in-law. Probably she was doing this for Naomi's sake. But any young woman who loved like Ruth loved would love and care for any man she set her mind to loving. That was for sure. So Boaz concluded, and he said it out loud, Ruth, this act of kindness is far better than any you have shown before. Yes, the Lord bless you. He continued, I will, I will make you my wife. But there's one problem. I can't. Or that is, there, there's someone else who has the first right and responsibility to do what you're asking me to do. He's a closer relative. But, but stay for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, fine. If not, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. But stay here with me until morning. Who knows what thoughts passed through the minds of this prospective couple as they drifted off to sleep under the harvest sky. But very early the next morning, before it was light enough to, to make out a face, Boaz and Ruth got up. Boaz said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. After all, the rumors, the innuendos, the suspicions would seriously undermine the official dealings that Ruth or Boaz needed to transact later that morning. 
Before Ruth left him, though, Boaz asked for her shawl. And he, he measured out six measures of barley into it, and he bundled it up, and he, he placed it on Ruth, and she hefted it home. You know, Strong was attractive back then. When she got home, Naomi was no doubt eager for the news. How did it go, my daughter? Ruth told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. Empty. Naomi had been so empty. She'd returned to Bethlehem without her husband, without her sons, without food or future. But now, thanks to Ruth and Boaz, she could feel her life and her heart beginning to fill up again. Wait, my daughter, she ventured, until you find out what happens, because the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Over at the village gate, Boaz was back in his element, deftly taking care of business. He, he sat by the gate until that closer relative that he'd mentioned to Ruth the night before came along. Come, my friend, sit over here by me, he said. The man sat down. Boaz then called over ten of the, the village elders and told them to sit down too. Now the impromptu village court could proceed. Boaz began. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, her ex-husband. You know, poor as Naomi is, she needs the money that the land can fetch in order to live on. And you know it's the tradition of our people and the command of our God to keep this land in our family. We don't want our family to lose its resources or, or their an, our ancestral homeland. And, and we need this land. We need the wherewithal in the future to help one another out. And because you are a closer relative, Boaz said to this other man, I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy the land in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Buy it if you want, and, and if you will not, then let me know, because I'm next in line to do so. Well, the, the other man, no doubt, did some quick financial calculations in his head. He considered what he'd have to pay to buy the land from Naomi. He estimated what the land might produce in terms of a profit in the coming years as a return on his investment for him and for his children after him. And he concluded that it was a good deal. I'll buy it, he said. But then Boaz upped the ante. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, he added, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz was reminding his relative of the responsibility that men in that culture had to marry the widow of a brother who had died childless or, or a close family member, evidently, who died childless in order to raise up a child for the deceased man so that the name and the estate of the dead man would carry on. Now that seems like a strange or even a distasteful custom to us, but carrying on your name and your estate was as important as life itself in that culture, and so they'd made provision to make sure it happened. Well, this changed the whole balance sheet for this man. Expense. He would have to feed and clothe and provide for Ruth and perhaps for additional children. Expense. 
If Ruth and he had a child, that child would inherit the land he was buying back instead of one of his own children. It wouldn't remain in his estate. This was a no-brainer. So the man replied, then I cannot buy it because I might endanger my own estate. You, buy it yourself. I can't. So Boaz did. He announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech and his two deceased sons, Kilian and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. And with that, the elders and all the people gave their blessing. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like uh, Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamor bore to Judah. So, blessed, having been blessed by his people, Boaz took Ruth as his wife. And the Lord enabled Ruth to have a child, her firstborn. She gave birth to a son. And in keeping with the godly tradition that Boaz had recounted there at the village gate, Boaz and Ruth gave that son to Naomi to be her son, to take the name and inherit the estate of her deceased husband, Elimelech. Naomi had a son again. Old Naomi, empty Naomi, bitter Naomi. God was indeed bringing pleasantness and fullness back into Naomi's life again. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who has this day not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. May he, uh, or he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Well, so ends the story of Ruth. Isn't it an amazing story? It's artfully told. It's got heartwarming love and commitment. It's got romance. It's got uh, danger and drama and intrigue. Overall, it's the story of the redemptive power of true friendship. It highlights a quality which we saw when we looked at the first half of Ruth. In Hebrew, it's called hesed. It's a it's a a caring, faithful love which puts one's own needs and rights and wants aside in order to be a blessing to someone else who you've committed yourself to. Hesed. We saw Ruth dis display this hesed when we looked at the first half of the story as she literally gave up the good future that she could have had in order to be there to love and to serve Naomi who had no future and who was literally in danger of starving to death. Today we see Boaz making similar sacrifices. As a wealthy businessman, Boaz made a decision which didn't make good financial sense. 
which was in fact bad for his bottom line. But, but he did it anyway in order to care about the people that God had put in his life to care about. Boaz, in the story, lays out money to buy land which won't ultimately remain in his estate. Boaz takes on the care and the support of two needy women who bring no dowry into the marriage, who have no way to pay him back. And Boaz fathers a child who won't ultimately inherit his name or probably his property. And so for the sake of Hesed, Boaz, hold, Boaz holds loosely to everything that was important to a man back then. And so Boaz displays and models the very faithful love, the very generosity, which is the heart of God. He is indeed a godly man. The kind of man that all who want to be godly men should seek to aspire to be like. And the kind of man that any woman who's looking for a husband should pray to find. This story, the story of Ruth, highlights and, and celebrates virtues which are so different from the values that we highlight and celebrate in today's society. Today, the most typical cause that the world calls us to sacrifice for is ourselves. Our wants, our desires, our fancies. It's all about me. And in those moments when the world does encourage us to rise above this selfishness and to give ourselves for a greater cause, it's, it's usually just that, a cause, uh, the environment or poverty or, or some other social issue. And, and those are good things. They're worth giving our life for. But so is, so is another human being, a spouse, a child, a parent, a relative, a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend. These are also worth our laying down our lives for. After all, what does Jesus say in John 15? Love is the greatest command, he says, and greater love has no one than this, that we lay down our lives for our friends. But how easily we fall into the trap of Odysseus, the pagan Greek hero of the Odyssey. I'm sure some of us had to read that in high school or college. Odysseus traveled the world experiencing adventure and, and fighting and winning battles and displaying bravery and honor. While all the while his family was falling apart back at home. That's the spirit of the age we live in. It's the pagan Odysseus spirit, not the Jesus spirit. Building a career or building a ministry. No time for friendships. No time to care for or visit an elderly parent. Little time for our spouse or our children. Now I'm not saying, and I don't think that Ruth is saying that family comes before all else. But this story is saying that if you are sacrificing friendship and family, that if you're sacrificing relationships, if you're sacrificing chesed toward the people God has put in your life, if you're sacrificing that on the altar of success, be it financial or professional or ministry or social cause, then you have missed the heart of God. 
If you find yourself making great personal sacrifices for your job or, or your hobbies or your, your net worth, your bottom line, or, or even for a great cause, but you seldom make great personal sacrifices for the people God has placed around you, then you've gotten badly off the track that Jesus is leading his followers on. This is countercultural, I realize. When the famous polar explorer Ernest Shackleton was planning his early 20th century expedition to the South Pole, he put the following ad in a London newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Do you know that men responded to Shackleton's advertisement in droves? Because deep down we have a yearning, don't we, for our lives to, to be about something great. Well, this book of Ruth, which God has inspired and, and which is God's word, speaks to that desire, the desire for something great, and, and points us to a greatness of a different sort of a divine sort. My wife, Anne, experienced this kind of greatness late one semester in Ireland when she was doing her junior year abroad in college. It was coming up on finals week, and Anne had several finals for some courses, and, and those scores, those test scores, would um, translate back home to uh, credits from her college program in the States. But for her Irish friends, these exams would more than likely determine the careers they would have or wouldn't have for the rest of their lives. Talk about pressure. Well, Anne was stressed about her exams, and, and she was struggling emotionally far from home. And, and one of her Irish friends left his studies, put aside his exams, his future, to spend several hours with her helping her through her anxiety. You see, the Irish value friendship. And we may think that doing that on exam week is, is kind of foolish, that it's kind of going overboard with the friendship thing. But the book of Ruth calls that into question. It makes us, asks us whether that foolishness is actually wiser than human wisdom. How did the Apostle Paul put it? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So let me ask us, if we don't make time to be friends and to show love to the people God has put right around us, then who do we really love? Imagine right here in Westchester and Putnam counties in a culture that's running 100 miles an hour to get ahead, to accomplish, to attain, to succeed. Imagine a community of people who have time for one another, who take time 
for other people who are practicing and keeping alive among them the dying art of friendship. Who actually embody a spirit of love and faithfulness among them. Imagine a, a community of people like that. Do you think that that would be attractive to some people? Do you think that Jesus could shine through a community like that? For Boaz, that kind of commitment to love had significant implications on his success. It affected his financial future. It transformed his family life. It cost him a lot without any obvious short-term paybacks. But in the long term, the rest of the story is that God took up and rewarded all of Boaz's sacrifices. And I'll close with this. First, God gave Boaz and his story a place in the Bible among the greats of God. Second, we read in 1 Kings 7.21 that Boaz's great-great-grandson, King Solomon, named one of the two mighty pillars of God's temple, Boaz. In the symbolism of the temple, this suggests that somehow, despite all appearances to the contrary, it's actually the Boazes of the world who are the very strong pillars in God's kingdom. And third, we saw when we looked at the first half of Ruth, how God took up and redeemed Boaz's and Ruth's acts of selfish, generous, selfless, generous love. When we saw that it was because of the two of them that King David was eventually born. It was from Ruth's and Boaz's compassionate, generous chesed that the Davidic kingdom and dynasty sprang, this kingdom which reached its end and its purpose eventually in the coming of Jesus, the great king himself. Jesus, who through the same kind of love established God's kingdom forever and is even now bringing about the redemption and the healing of all things. So that's what we who follow Jesus are to be about. That's our legacy. That's our model, our example. Those are the marching orders. Those are our marching orders, the marching orders of the kingdom of God in a world which doesn't have time for love. So four weeks ago, the challenge I left you with was to take time to be a friend to someone else. And I know some of you took me up on that challenge because I've heard some of the stories. My challenge this morning and this fall is to take it to the next level. Make it a habit. Make friendship, make choosing love into a lifestyle. May we as a church choose love over success. That's what pleases God and shows the world what Jesus is like. And that's a big part of how we'll reach the next generations. Amen.